Welcome to the August 2018 edition of Bookplate. Find us on the web at foreveryoungadult.com. Join a book club chapter in your area or start your own by visiting us online and clicking on the book club link at the top. Don't forget to check out our monthly themed wallpaper created by graphics goddess Mandy C, which is always featured at the top of the page. I am Annie, your apprentice sound engineer and podcast editor, proud member and perpetual cheerleader of the San Francisco chapter of Forever Young Adult. I'm Britt, also from SFFYA, and I'm Amanda from SFFYA. Bookplate always divides the book like a meal into easily digestible portions. Our first piece is always the amuse-bouche. Little and Lion are sister and brother in a half-and-half half family. Little comes home from boarding school for their first summer together as a family since Lion's bipolar diagnosis and finds her brother off his meds and herself holding this secret for him from her parents. Along with her own secrets, it looks to be an interesting summer, a novel by Brandy Colbert or Colbert, depending on how pretentious you are. <laughs> uh, so our other cover take is when we ask our significant others what they think. My significant other is Jamal, and I showed him the cover, and he said, a high society coming-of-age story with someone named Little in a city that is the lion. I love that the city's the lion. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the cover that I showed Garrett is the one with the black background and then the blue and pink letters on it. So um, the tagline says, was trusting each other their biggest mistake. So he first stared at it for a while and was like, I have no idea, but it's probably about two high school students and trusting each other was their biggest mistake, <laughs> which I mean, we read YA. So two high school students is a pretty, pretty good guess. And you know, was trusting each other their biggest mistake is right on the cover, so. He's a smart one, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I asked Bill, and he <laughs> looked at the little drawings, and he thought it looked like graffiti, and so he said that he thought it was about one graffiti artist mentoring another, and he also thought it was a New York because they had a New Yorker cover. <laughs> oh, yeah, they uh, did have the New Yorker covers. Yeah. Even though they had a palm tree, so, I mean, it could be kind of either. There's probably palm trees somewhere in New York. Maybe. <laughs> In some fancy hotel. Botanical garden or something. <laughs> did you did you re- get the book from the library? Did you get like an actual book or do you do the uh, audio or? I did the library. You did the library. I listened to the audio book. I have a long commute, so. Nice. I love that you're holding down the audio book corner. <laughs> <laughs> Was it a good narrator? Yes. Yeah. The narrator definitely like can make it or break it. Um, the narr- narrator was really good. Um, she did a good job like kind of varying her voices for the different characters and then when it was like the back then chapters she kind of like changed the like lilt in her voice a little bit to make the main character sound really young oh, so wow. like, cool. uh, yeah so she, yeah she was good i would definitely listen to other audiobooks narrated by her that's so cool i just i uh, know i just was thinking like oh you could get a job doing that i want a job doing that. <laughs> <laughs> um did you want to the other thing about Garrett's oh yeah so um Garrett studied graphic design in college um he had a lot of issues with the hate you give cover because the background was white but the poster was white and there was no outline to the poster so he's like it looks like a floating hand <laughs> uh so for little and lion he just thought the cover was very generic looking and the sort of hand-drawn font he's like that was just super overdone after the movie Juno came out it was just kind of everywhere so is is <laughs> is commenting on graphic design his like side game? <laughs> it should be. 
Okay. So our appetizer is local truck tacos. I, actually, they ate really well in this book. Mm-hmm. And local truck tacos in L.A. are the best. Uh, so the first uh, topic, which is meaty, even though it's our appetizer, I wanted to bring up is having a relationship with someone is who is bipolar. And I didn't I don't know if you if any of you want to speak on the record, if you've had a relationship with someone who's bipolar, either like family, friend or otherwise. Um, never anybody diagnosed. I have my suspicions. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, no. Um, I dated someone who was bipolar, but didn't know she was bipolar until after um, she kind of had a maybe I don't maybe a breakdown. I'm not sure what I would call it, but like she had a sort of culminating moment like Lion did in the story. Um yeah. I think it felt really real. The story was really real for me from what I know. I've had a few different folks, but uh I've seen younger people who've like just found out, you know, kind of like have a break. Those people that I know are usually a little older than um Lion, like more in their early 20s. Um and then I also have I knew someone for a long time who had had a break when he was like 25 and it was like a pretty significant like manic episode. But since then found the right dose for him and was having like a totally normal life. I never saw him get go either way. You know, he was always like a high energy person when I knew him. But um, the only consequence he was like much older, you know, in his 50s, maybe even his 60s. And the only consequence really is that when you are on medication for that long, it does affect your body. So he had kidney failure, ended up having to have oh a kidney gosh. transplant. And that was a direct relation to like the fact that he'd been taking medication for so long. But Jesus. besides that very significant medical <laughs> uh, experience, like really was just like living his life. And like there was he was fine. There was no like concern or worry or whatever it's just like he'd figured it out and had the dosage and was like doing well i was it it was nice to see because i'd previously only seen cases where that was that was not the situation people were on and off their meds not you know not doing particularly well and like not living the life they'd imagined for themselves so i'm glad that i'm glad that this book kind of gave us both Mm mm-hmm yeah, um, I thought that was important. I kind of wish we got to know Lion's mom a little bit more because I think that the b- book did a good job of not feeling preachy because it wasn't like take your meds or this will happen to you because there's Lion's mom who you know manages without her meds and she lives her life the way that she does. Um, so I wish we got to see a little bit more of that side, but um, it was nice that that was included so there wasn't like a you know because meds aren't right for everybody. So the author wasn't really trying to say, like, you should do this. It was just kind of an exploration of different paths that you can take to manage your illness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, were you going to say something? No, I mean, I like that. And I like that, it, you know, Lion is a child. And so they have to make this decision sort of for him and that his mom went along with it. So even though it's not her path, she recognized that maybe until he can make those kind of decisions that it's a path she was willing to put him on. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I I thought it was really nice that we 
I mean, we're dealing with the mental illness and it's a difficult thing that the family's dealing with, but there's no, I didn't feel like there's the same side of sort of weighty stigma. Although we do get that conversation with the other youth. Like I can't remember what they kept saying, like, Oh, he's crazy or like whatever. They had come up with a bunch of hypotheticals about why he wasn't in school or wasn't like yes. doing well. And he was really concerned about the social stigma and didn't want, it like made him withdraw into himself and he didn't go to parties as yeah. much. And and then, like, his friends, like, stopped reaching out to him because they didn't really know how to talk to him and kind of navigating around the subject. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we need to normalize it and have these conversations because there it is a cycle. You know, you need your people to back you up, even if they don't understand why or what's happening, just to, like, continue to be there for you. And when you don't have them and you retreat into yourself, you make more egregious decisions about your health care. And mm-hmm. it, you know directly affects you i can't i can't remember what statistic it is but there's like some crazy statistic for older adults that just like having a social circle is what makes you live longer right (laughs) and i think in like even as young people like having a healthy social circle or at least like something outside of your own you know thought spirals (laughs) to like interact with is really important our next piece is the main course and we have two things from the fancy fridge raid picnic which i loved it was like the perfect fancy fridge raid <laughs> picnic uh the first one is carefree black girl which suzette basically in my mind embodies like she lives in a tower in her like beautiful home that people think is like the nicest victorian they've seen she has these dreads they're like no big deal i mean it gets commented on but it's just like this is her life and you know sh- it's not made a huge like stereotype of and then she has I mean I still am slightly obsessed with the yellow beach cruiser bike that was one of my favorite (laughs) scenes she's just like I'm gonna get on my bike and go down I'm like oh my god I could totally (laughs) see that and like the sun shining and the smile on your face just like this is a lovely summer and you deserve it and then also her parents just like have an ease of money that make her the issues that they're having like not stereotypes about like people as um you know, I think a lot of the times when we think of black people, or at least the way they're portrayed in our media, is they're often not wealthy and not wi- don't have an ease of money for a number of reasons, including this country's intentional like st- like stripping away of intergenerational wealth <laughs> from that community. So I thought like it was just nice to like not have any of those things to deal with. Let's give her the things that like any person would deal with, and not have it because you know she just happens to be black. And I really, I loved that. I loved that it was just, like, the thing. And, like, she can just be herself and it was beautiful. I think most contemporary YA I've read, though, are the kids of an upper middle class. Mm. Really? I feel like maybe I'm, and maybe it's just what I see on TV, too. Like, everybody has a really nice house with a really big kitchen with an island and, like, a wood-paneled refrigerator, (laughs) which is just insane from where I grew up. Like, nobody had anything like that, so... It always seems to me the kids are rich, but I guess the hate you give, they weren't. No, definitely not in the hate you give, not in the crazy story where the girl's in the trailer who kills everybody. Not fangirl, I guess she, they seem to be like kind of middle class. And she was, that's like from the eighties too. Like, so a little bit back in time. No, you're thinking of Eleanor and Park. Oh, you're right. Sorry. You're right. So, okay. Maybe I'm, I'm just coming out of my butt with that no <laughs> no but i think the me- lo- i think of like modern family when i think of like this sort yeah. of everybody's shiny we all assume we're like mall wealthy and like that's a, such a good phrase mall wealthy <laughs> <laughs> what 
give it was important to the story because like they were creating a stark contrast between like her life at home and her neighborhood and her community and the school that she goes to that is like very much removed from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't an issue in this book. And I think that way we got to explore a lot more of the characters Mm -hmm. and not necessarily their circumstances. It gave us like more room for that. Yeah. It was less identity politics and more like about just like people living their lives. Mm -hmm. But when you said that, I totally, I just recently watched Love, Simon all the way through. And I it is. I haven't seen it. I love the book, though. Oh, the <laughs> movie's good. They changed a little, they changed some things about it. And the, actually, the end scene was not my favorite. But <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. All of the houses that they have are like the kitchen with the island and like the nice <laughs> open room. I hadn't even thought about that. I, since money was, like, my family had a change in circumstances kind of in middle school where like money was tight and money was definitely the dividing line between like us and everybody else and then became not the dividing line and when so when I read YA I'm just like very cognizant of like how that affected me and like how even in the contemporary you know in this story she goes to boarding school on the east coast that's expensive that's like going to college Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you know i I, and i was i'm still confused unless she's her mother is really selling all of the scripts how like her carpenter father and her scriptwriter mother (laughs) is making enough money to send her to boarding school maybe he's like a fancy furniture designer maybe less a carpenter i don't know i kind of felt that way but i was still like you're still you like working with your hands and artisans aren't valued. That's true. You know, although maybe in LA they pay crazy money for wooden tables. I have no <laughs> <idea>. <laughs> uh, that would not surprise me. <laughs> there is something beautiful about it. That was really nice. And I'm not, you know, I was like, Oh, this contemporary is making me like it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then the other topic for this one is the buy book. And we have a biracial family, a bisexual main character, a bipolar character, and the only piece missing, which could have happened because it's L.A., is bilingual. But I was like, yes, we get all of the things, (laughs) the intersectionality of life. Was there any particular piece you liked about that? Let me read that blog post. (laughs) So there is a blog post that I found by the author. By the way, the narrator of the audiobook's name is Alicia Wainwright. Thanks. Yes, I found a blog post by the author about writing this book, and I just wanted to read part of it. She said, Sometimes people seem taken aback by a character that is Jewish, black, and bisexual, or a black and Korean-American boy who wears hearing aids, or a pansexual Latina. And some people are especially troubled by the fact that these identities can all exist in one novel. They believe that exploring these intersections is trying too hard to be politically correct, or that it's just a tad too much diversity for one story. And I believe that to be insulting to people who are actually living these lives. So, yeah, I think, like, all of all of the layers kept it from feeling like an issue book because it wasn't really about one issue. Like, it was more realistic because no one's just one thing. Everyone has, like, these multiple layers in their lives. Yeah, we were talking about how it feels just, like, really lived in and just, like, kind of a deep and sensitive character portrait where I, I really liked how internal Suzette's narrative was that she was always thinking about everything she wasn't like a person who acted first and then thought about like what she did after the fact she seemed really in her head and I thought that was interesting 
I think we were um, talking about the pool scene where she had a microaggression directed at her by a friend of a friend and um, how that was sort of realistic. Yeah. Brett, do you want to (laughs) say your piece? Sure. Yeah. I've been in that situation probably more times than I can count. Like that scene really, really like stuck with me. I had to like stop the audiobook and like put it down for a couple days and listen to podcasts before I could come back to it like after fully processing it but like so they're playing um chicken or whatever oh yeah in the pool and she and Emil beat like the girl and her friend or whatever and the girl goes oh that's not fair I thought black people weren't supposed to be able to swim or whatever and like there's just this awkward silence and no one says anything like everybody is at this party it's just like record scratch silence and then Emil busted with the history lesson like well actually um but not well actually in a mansplaining way well actually in like a <laughs> like you need to learn your history lady way yeah and then they like took a break from the party and then when Suzette came back and she you know tried to talk to Dee, Dee about it who's supposed to be her best friend and Dee Dee's like well that was awkward can we just move on and like I've, I've been in that situation where someone says something and even though lots of people are there and lots of people hear it, no one says anything and no one sticks up for you. And even later you try to talk to a friend about it and they're like, well, I don't know what to say, but you know, something is better than nothing. Like for me, I just want to know that somebody has my back, like in real life and not just on Twitter where people love to be woke, but right. <laughs> like where it counts. And um, I think, Annie, you were saying something about like having to practice like confrontational because I read somewhere somebody talking about you have to like sort of internalize that the person who has said the bad thing is the person who wrecked the party and not the person who calls out the person who for saying the bad thing where the instinct is just like maybe we just all cringe for a second and then it'll move on and we can go back to having a good time but then nobody's having a good time because everybody feels weird inside about it and it's better just to get it out yeah it's one of the it's like you you every time there's a microaggression or a macroaggression saying something you have to balance like the the consequences of actually speaking up versus like the need to say something and like it's different for everyone in different situations but I've totally had the reaction where like somebody was clearly in the wrong clearly making everyone uncomfortable and then when someone called him on it I was like oh we're all drunk and he had earlier fucking put hands on me and I was like I was more concerned about smoothing it over and making it okay than I was like calling this dude out he was also really scary and big but like I have found that I I'm having this situation at work where I'm having a microaggression with someone in particular who I have a history of not getting along with. There are only two people who have yelled at me at work. This woman is one of them. She has never apologized ever for that behavior. And I just feel that she uses and weaponizes her power to make other people feel small, both other white people as well as non-white people. (laughs) And we've been having this conversation at work about white fragility um, intentionally. And she does this whole performative thing where she, like, forces us all to listen to her process and basically perform allyship in a way that, like, keeps everybody hostage and you can't walk away. And and I, f- I have felt like she's kept me hostage and not let, f- let me leave a situation before. So we've now had a couple situations where, like, 
she did it in a full staff meeting and I really wanted to say something, but I also didn't want to like start a fight (laughs) that we had let lie and like had moved on from. And then I also had already felt like in the conversation that I had spoken too much. I try really hard to not speak too much when we have, when we're specifically when we're talking about diversity issues and we want the people who don't speak a lot to, to feel comfortable speaking. Um, and then she did it again, like revisited that moment and like forced us all to watch her process again and even said, my journey is my journey. And I wanted to be like, that's great, but could you please take your journey elsewhere? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so uncomfortable and I was like sitting there like staring at my shoe. Usually I make eye contact with people and I like can't even look at her because it just, it like really triggers something for me and I feel really disempowered and I wanted to say something and I kept being like, you need to say something, you need to say something, you need to say something. And I still didn't. And so now I've realized, like, it'll happen again. Clearly, we're having this conversation. It's continuing. It's it's intentionally. Like, we're working on it, right? And I need to figure out what and how to say it in a way that, like, she can't weaponize against me. And it f- <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to say or how I'm going to say it. But, like, at some point, I'm going to stand up for myself and, like, call her on it. But I also – it also just, like – gets me too close to the enemy even just yeah. saying something it like engages this person in a way that I would prefer to just keep it arm's length at this point but no one else feels empowered no one else has like the particular history that we do yeah so I need to just like I work on this I have all the sexual the sexuality stuff down because I've been harassed so many times and I've had so many opportunities to tell people off with that shit that like I feel more empowered to like really call people on it or at least like be reactionary and be like get your hands off me but when it's white women, sometimes it's like a lot harder, especially being looking like a white woman and like having my white woman mom, you know, it just like, I don't know, there's, it's just sometimes harder in that way. It is harder, but I think we were agreeing that it's better if you have some position of power and then people might listen to you more to speak up. So it's hard and it sucks. And I think you should try. And if you fail, you should try the next time. I think. I think like Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> so often the onus falls on the person who's being attacked or being oppressed to defend themselves when, like you said, there's other people who are like out of harm's way who are, are in a position to say something and be more believed or recognized or whatever. And, you know, like if you choose silence, you're choosing the side of the oppressor. But then um, you were saying something that like about the dude who put hands on you, like if I mean, if your physical like safety is being threatened, like there's a different way to go about it. Like I read something where like I think it was specifically in defense of um, like women wearing hijabs or sort of Muslim presenting, I guess. And if they're being harassed, like you can walk up to the person and like engage them in a conversation like, you know, them and like it will cause the the attacker to kind of like back off or you can like offer to like lead them into a safe area or just like oh hey have you read blah 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 how's the weather whatever and it like throws off the person who's intervening or whatever's or who's you're intervening by throwing the like aggressor yes my words (laughs) (laughs) they're not coming to me um so there's still ways to speak up so I feel like not knowing what to say or like it's just it's kind of an excuse and like I say this with someone who with as someone with ridiculous amounts of anxiety but I just I don't know there's like too much at stake to stay silent in situations like this 
we were talking about this earlier, but I just I finished recently finished reading Ijoa Ulo's Ijoma Ulo's book. Um, so you want to talk about race, which I highly recommend. And she even has parts of her chapters, which are like for white people reading this, for non-white people reading this. And one of the things she, she talks about is how like a microaggression is like someone's been hitting you in the arm over and over again. You have a bruise that someone might not be able to see. And like someone accidentally brushes by you and brushes the same spot. And you it really, really hurts because that same place has been hit over and over again. And in the pool scene, I think she almost says, like, don't be too sensitive or something, which is like a classic. Like, why are you overreacting? Well, it's like this has happened. This is happening over and over and over again. Like, right. you might not be able to see this. You might not feel this bruise, but it is real and it is there. And my feelings are legitimately <laughs> hurt. And, and I get to say that. in this situation because it was her best friend. And yeah. this was just a rando at the party. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. So it sort of was a betrayal. Yeah. And like. You know, if she says something or if I say something, we're like the angry black woman stereotype. So like and even I mean, Emil was the person who stuck up for her, the other black person at the party. But like, you know, nobody else did. So. Yeah, I will say one last thing about the work conversation and be done. But talking about the white fragility, like the one of the ways they set it up is that white people have not been having these conversations intent intentionally like we are we are intentionally insulating ourselves and our power structure so that we don't have to have them and so putting the onus on the non-white people to have these conversations is just making them do further labor we need to do the work and do the labor which is why i'm like i need to know the words and to know the response and also just like to practice sticking up for people in real life and not just on twitter (laughs) there's this uh I'm not on Facebook anymore, but when I was, there was this Facebook account called White Nonsense Roundup. (laughs) And, like, if you are just getting into it with someone ignorant on Facebook and, you know, you are, like, a person of color who has to keep defending yourself, um, you can tag them in the post and they will come to your defense and like do it for you and it's great because it's like yeah i know is it so a you just tag like no it's like a group of it's real group people. Of people wow so you like at white nonsense roundup and they're like all right so here's why like you know blah 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 and it's just sometimes you're afraid to speak for other people but then sometimes like you need to because you're the ones who are going to be heard or because like when we do it it's like we're just shouting into the void we've been saying the same things over and over and over um it's like you were, so, you were talking about Modern Family earlier. There's this episode of Modern Family when Phil says, like, some guy at work got him to try a wedge salad and it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and Claire just goes, like, on a rampage and he doesn't understand why she's so upset. And then at the end of the episode, she's like, I've been telling you about wedge salads for years and you haven't been listening. <laughs> and this dude from work says, try a wedge salad and now it's your favorite thing in the world. So, That's you know. Beautiful. <laughs> So wedge salad, it's going to happen. Wedge Prepare salad. for it. <laughs> Be ready. Wedge salad for president. <laughs> oh All right. Move on to dessert. Let's do it. So 4th of July cake and cats. We'll briefly talk about cats, <laughs> which is my favorite YA trope. It's probably just my favorite literary <laughs> trope, and I'm just slightly obsessed with my own cat these days. So there is a super fluffy orange cat um that i imagine is one of our fellow book club members cat he was just like sitting in as the cat for me <laughs> in this book but i i always love a good cat addition to any <laughs> ya novel they make everything better personally i think so i mean you have an orange cat i do yeah he's fat and 
sleeps a lot. <laughs> Hates books, though. Like, will what? not let me read. Tries to, like, come sit on my book if I'm ever <laughs> reading with the actual physical book. Does he chew them? What? Does he chew the books? He doesn't chew the book, but he hits his head into it <laughs> really hard. Pay to attention rub to his me. Face on it. Like <laughs> um, my cat sometimes chews the books. And I'm like, dude, this is a library book. That's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Did we talk about the the love interest? Oh, no, we can talk about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so I was earlier ranking the love interest <laughs> because it's my favorite thing to do because I love a good romance and a YA. And my ranking, my power rankings are um, the girl at boarding school because Iris. Iris. Yeah. Yeah, Iris. I'm sorry. I read this a while ago um, because she cared so much about her that she was willing to let everybody at school think she was a predator so she would not have to deal with repercussions of their lesbian relationship being I'm disappointed outed. that like Suzette took her up on it like yeah I know she was like putting the offer out there but to be like okay thanks <laughs> <laughs> like I know she's feeling like tons of guilt about it afterward but like that's really shitty but it's so real though because yeah like, it's that anxiety thing it is. That everybody feels caught out and they want to go with whatever makes them not in the spotlight anymore yeah, yeah. and like smooths it over and everybody's subject to that i kind of think but yeah it was it was kind of saying <laughs> and um but i liked the boy because i felt he was really into her and listened to her and cared about her and you know was dealing with the stuff he had stuff and he was dealing with it in a reasonable manner. And then I was not a fan of the girl because I think you should not come between siblings. <laughs> I think that's dirty practice. As you yeah. said, the messy drama girl. The messy, yeah. Messy bitch who lives for drama. <laughs> she really was though. You don't text the wrong you don't text the kid, invite him to the party. That was the thing that upset me that, the most. Yeah. Um, but we were saying she's kind of like reliving her trauma. Like she had she had a reason to move. She was in like what seemed to be a somewhat ma- perhaps an abusive relationship was revisiting another abusive relationship. And, you know, once you've done it once, you kind of do have to like do it a couple cycles before you can really break it. And, uh, there's the cat. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of cats. But yeah, she was not my favorite, even though she was like the sexiest. Yeah. She was definitely yeah. the sexiest. The tattoos. Yeah. Um, the scene in the bathroom when Rafaela was putting the lipstick on Suzette and like she looks Suzette in the eye and says like, I don't come between siblings and Suzette's like, uh, okay. And Rafaela's like, I'm just reminding myself. Like <laughs> that was kind of like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. That was, it, I don't know. Like it, you know, she was so head over heels for uh lion, but she still, flirted with Suzette and still kind of like led her on in a way and it was not cool Mm-mm. like it happens but yeah I was also thinking that um Lion and Rafaela's relationship was moving too fast like I thought it was kind of to advance the plot because they went on like two dates and then it was like we're in love but <laughs> also like thinking about him and you know having bipolar disorder and like feeling his feelings to the extreme Mm -hmm. it actually it makes sense to think about it that way and that other girl he dated remember yeah Yeah. that was sort of the precipitating event for yeah she he seemed really into her too so maybe he just sort of throws himself into relationships i mean the first bipolar person i dated definitely told me they loved me like very very quickly and it was very terrifying yeah, the bipolar person I dated wanted to marry me after three months. Wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, it's such a, you know, illness of extreme, you mm-hmm. know, highs and lows that, like, it feels like 
you know, maybe there isn't that middle ground or like taking things slowly. It's like all or nothing. Cat's going back outside. <laughs> um, all Maybe right. To the nearest flower shop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do love the flower shop. All right. Our drinks are fancy spiced rum. And I. this is actually the thing that I in, was happiest about in the book was non-extravagant violence and no bloody endings. Mm-hmm. And in a world where we have a lot of very gratuitous violence, I was so glad that there was no bloody ending for this book i mean mm-hmm. i definitely once lion disappears and like my family's freaking out i totally had that not in my stomach being like oh no oh no oh no don't do it don't do it. like don't do it please um what is our author's name again brandy brandy please brandy <laughs> don't do it <laughs> um and i'm so glad she did <laughs> like it was just i think we needed you know a lived-in book that, like, allowed the family to move on and, like, continue its processing that didn't just, like, cut cut the person off and let them, like, die in a bloody mess, you right. know? Yeah, like, you made a mistake, Suzette. Now you're going to oh pay God. for it for the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's a whole different book. Right. Yeah, that's, like, a book later where she's, like, I'm haunted by the memory of my brother. <laughs> uh, his death is why I'm on a killing spree. There's your swords. Right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we read that book. Right. We did. The How to Break a Boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, why does that ruin sound familiar? ruined lives. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. What did you, th- you two think of that? Were you satisfied with the end? I think so. I, as much as I wanted, like, her and Emil to be together, I like that she went back to work things out with Iris and kind of closed that um, loop or whatever. Yeah, I thought that was good. Like her not running away from problems, like facing them head on. Sort of a 180 from what she did with Lion. But oh, we talked about this before. The parents like put a lot of pressure on her, but then also kind of blamed her for putting pressure on herself. Mm-hmm. Like I was when they first sent her away to boarding school, we hadn't yet learned why. I was waiting for like the reason to be that there was like some big dramatic blowout or like Lionel had tried to like hurt her or something happened and it was just like you care too much so we're gonna send you away but like if she hadn't like been the one spending all the time with him and noticing his shifts and his mood and behaviors like she noticed that something was wrong before the parents did and she brought it to their attention um So I kind of had to, like, suspend belief that that was the reason that they sent her away. Mm. That was hard for me to understand. But then... I thought it was because they were feeling guilty that they should have noticed those things. And then they were feeling doubly guilty because, like, now this other child that they have, like, is being dragged down in this and doing their work for them. And they wanted to remove her from the situation so she wouldn't have to be that anymore. It was sort of a way of retroactively making up for their lack of attention. But it was also a jerk move (laughs) and not well thought out. I was just, I was mad that, like, everybody put all the stuff on Suzette, like, lion like taking her on the hike and like being like well i'm gonna throw my meds off a cliff (laughs) like what she's supposed to do in that situation so like he kind of like backed her into a corner there and then you know threatened that like that she would lose him like the person that she was closest to if he said anything to the parents and you know she wrestles with this decision but she's like she's scared to lose her brother and she thinks that she can sort of an eye on him and i needed a 
is kind of reasonable because when she went to the parents before, it enacted all these traumatic shift of events into their life that right. made her life go into these divergent patterns. So her talking really seemed to like, you know, make the situation worse, even though in the end it was for the best. Yeah. So and then like when she finally did confess that like she'd been keeping the secret and that he's been off his meds for a while. Um, their reaction was just like, well, obviously you should have known better and like know that he didn't really mean he was going to be done with you forever. But like, how, how are you supposed to know that you're mm-hmm. 16 and like your best friend says that they want nothing to do with you unless you keep this really big secret for them? Like, what are you supposed to do? I don't know. I'd probably, I mean, I think that's another thing I liked so much about this book is everything, everything felt really real. Relatable. Yeah. And they were good people. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't as if they're good people still making hard choices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I like because we've had so many morally bankrupt characters. Right. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> makes mistakes and families make mistakes and it doesn't mean they don't love each other and don't want the best for each other. And yeah, it just felt completely real. Yeah. Well done, Brandy. <laughs> um, with that, should we say... Book appetit? Yeah. <laughs> Book appetit. Book appetit. Book appetit.